Good evening, everyone. Welcome to the Midtown Scholar Bookstore. Thank you so much for coming out on this wonderful evening. It's a pleasure to welcome you to the bookstore um, as we welcome acclaimed journalist and activist Darnell Moore to Harrisburg to present his new memoir, No Ashes in the Fire. Before we get started, I'd like to give a huge thanks to our co-sponsor for tonight's event, the LGBT Center of Central PA. There are neighbors uh, right next door as you walk out 3rd Street. Um, they have a table set up tonight. Uh, Amanda is here. So please say hello. Check out all the events that are happening um, over at the LGBT Center and throughout the community. Um, I'd also encourage you to take a print newsletter of our upcoming events as you exit tonight. We love putting on events like these. Um, so stay tuned to our website, our Facebook page, and our events calendars to stay on top of all our events uh, here at the Scholar. Now I'd like to introduce Harrisburg's own Julia Mallory, who is going to introduce Darnell to the stage. Julia is a poet and owner of Black Mermaids, which is rooted in the reimagining of the mythology surrounding mermaids, and you can definitely ask her more about this after the event. In her book of poetry, she examines the spirit of what it means to be bold, brave, and resilient for people across the African diaspora. Her latest children's book, Breathe, is about a little boy that meditates with his dad and will be released this October, so stay tuned. Now please join me in giving a warm welcome to Harrisburg's own Julia Mallory. Hey, Harrisburg, and Harrisburg adjacent. <laughs> um, I have the distinct honor and pleasure to welcome Darnell Moore to our city um, to talk about his book, No Ashes in the Fire. Um, can I see a show of hands who's already read the book? Okay, okay, no problem, um, because I'm sure after seeing him speak and read from his book, you will definitely uh, be uh, more than motivated to do so. So when I read, first of all, let me start back a little bit about seeing just Darnell Moore on social media. Um, and was like, oh my God, who is this brilliant black man? Um, and he's talking about things that you don't see um, in everyday life. And so I was just always impressed with him. And then when he released his memoir, No Ashes in the Fire, um, he got a permanent, uh, my, my fandom was solidified after reading his book. Um, some of the things I was mostly struck by, there are so many similarities. He grew up in Camden, New Jersey. There are so many similarities to Camden, to Harrisburg. Um, no Ashes in the Fire chronicles his journey um, to, to basically not only find himself, but to honor his path and to basically find a way to love others, um, even when it's not easy. And I think we can all universally understand um, how difficult that can be. Um, Darnell's story is not an easy one, um, but it's a necessary one. And so we're, I'm grateful that he was able to pin this, um, this heart-wrenching um, story of love and redemption. So without further ado, because I could probably talk about Darnell and how awesome he is for like three days, um, but you didn't come to see me, you came to see him. And so I will let him, in his own words, tell you about No Ashes in the Fire. Can, and, and join me in welcoming Darnell, like a really warm, like we're so happy you're here. <laughs> I didn't know it would be this many people. I got really nervous when I walked upstairs. <laughs> um, but good, what, what time is it? Six, so good evening, everybody. Um, 
I'm trying to keep up with time. I've been traveling a lot and doing the most um, and often forgetting what cities I'm in. Um, but I'm really, really happy to be here. And I have some connection to Harrisburg. Um, a former partner of mine, his family lives here. And the first time I think I came was uh, maybe seven years ago and sort of fell in love with the place. So it's nice to return to a place that I feel connected to. And it's good to see all of you here on a Saturday. I mean, you could be anywhere at a barbecue, the bar, <laughs> and you're here to talk about books. Um, typically, what I'd like to do is have conversation with, in, with folk. Um, I typically, I'm never really up on stage by myself, and I try not to talk. Um, but alas, here I am. And what I think I want to do is just offer a bit about why this book and why now. And then I selected a few portions that I'll read and in between the readings offer a bit of context for those portions, is that cool? And, but I really wanna be engaged with you all because I don't really like talking that much. Um, but a bit about why I wrote the book. Uh, I wrote this book because it's the book that I needed when I was 16 years old. It's a book that I wish somebody had put in my hands when I was trying to figure out how best to move through a world that does not always make space for folk who occupy the world in ways that I did, the ways that my family did, specifically what that meant for me. How does one come to love oneself as black in a country that has told you blackness is a thing to be denied and derided? How does one come to love oneself as economically disenfranchised when words and ideologies of meritocracy is sort of what governs the way we think about success? You know, we think that people who pull themselves up on the bootstrap, folk just work really, really hard, um, that somehow we'll be successful despite um, and in spite of all of the barriers, the real material barriers that may stop that. How does one come to be a human being in a world that tells you that we ought to be good men and women? Think about this, we're never asked to be good people, good human beings. We're asked to be good men and women, and those categories for so many of us are cages. Well, what do I mean by that? I always say, like, before I had any sense of what it meant to be a good person in the world, I was told to be a real good man. And we know what that message implies, don't we? Men don't do what? You don't cry. You don't show emotions. You ought to be strong, and sometimes you show that strength by the use of your physical prowess. You think we're taught to believe that we're more smarter. Um, and we're, we're raised, even as boys, to be men, and particularly for black youth. This is a really important point. There's a scholar who talks about black children having what he calls accelerated childhood. In other words, you don't get to be kids. You don't get to play hide-go-seek. You don't get to play on the big wheel. Before you even know how to pee straight, you're, you're being commanded and told in the world uh, the type of man you should be. And let me tell you why I know that's not a problem just for people like me. Do you know the name Tamir Rice? Yeah, Tamir Rice was 12. And Tamir Rice was playing in a park with his sister. But somehow that 12-year-old black boy was looked upon as an adult, as a bigger person who could do harm and was shot and killed by law enforcement. It was important for me to write a book about people who exist on the edges of the edges of the margins. I come from a city, Camden, New Jersey. You all know it because I'm sure you heard about the ways in which people talked about it in, within media. Y'all heard of Camden, New Jersey? And probably what you heard was that it is one of the most violent cities in the country. 
When I was living there, it was one was called the most poor, economically disenfranchised. And that was the messages that were told to me when I was a kid. That's all I heard. I would read the, the local newspaper, and all I would ever be fed were messages about the city that I lived in, which was often constructed the way that it was, mostly because it was a city where black and Latinx people lived, as if the presence of black people in, a, in an urban space is somehow a pathogen that's going to make a city bad, as if the city itself did not have a long history of political and economic disenfranchisement, white flight, a history of racism, and so much else. This was Walt Whitman's invincible city. It was invincible when Whitman talked about it. Somehow, when my people were growing up and living there, it wasn't so much so. I can go on, but these were the things that I wanted to explore in the book. How do we become who we are? How do we know, come to know what we know? And those were important questions for me. I didn't, wasn't interested in writing myself in a book as a hero or as a victim solely. I was also interested in exploring myself. The other thing I would say is that I went through a school system. Now get this, a mostly black school system, a school system with black and Puerto Rican kids mostly, having never read a book with characters that look like me. Ever. I had books with talking animals, Animal Farm. Mice and Men. I had books about tragedy and nihilism, like 1984. I had books about white heterosexual love, like Romeo and Juliet. Never once did anyone put James Baldwin in my hand. They did not put Audre Lorde or June Jordan in my hand. They did not put Toni Morrison in my hand. They did not put Joseph Beam, who was a black gay writer, who lived right across the bridge from Camden and Philly, who was writing at the time and height of the AIDS epidemic, whose words I actually needed, but they didn't put those in my hand. And I kept thinking, well, how tragic and how violent is that? To have to grow up in spaces, in school systems, in a world that refuses to allow you to see yourself. So there are education scholars who say that children need mirrors and windows. They often get mirrors. Well, some of us get mirrors. Some of us get books that amplify parts of our lives, and I'm sure some of you saw yourselves in some of these books. Some of us don't get that. So this is a mirror for that 16-year-old black boy coming of age, understanding himself to be a person in a world who might identify as gay or bi or queer, that young person in a city who's in schools that, with in schools that, that, that are full of people that look like him but don't see books that look like her or him. In the, this is the story, this is a book for them. Um, had, I had I had this book, I think, at 16, I probably would have not spent two decades trying to take myself out of here. That's real talk. This book is also a window. It's an invitation to people who have not lived in these experiences to, to, to walk or a ride in the shoes or the wheelchair of someone different than themselves. It's an invitation to all of us to see that the story of Camden's becoming, of Harrisburg's becoming, of any post-industrial, deindustrialized cities becoming, is one that all of our hands are in. It's both a memoir and its social history. Um, and it's a story that I, I really am excited to share. I was nervous because I thought it would be made into the type of book that becomes sort of black trauma porn. That is, the type of books where we love to just cry about the shit that black people go through. Which helps us to sort of assuage our guilt sometimes. And I mean by guilt, I mean all of us. But what I wanted to do is to challenge people to understand that any of us in the world, we become what we are because of the hands that shape us. And guess whose hands shape people? All of our hands. 
the things that we say and the things that we don't, the things that we allow to be said in front of us and the things that we uh, say ourselves. So, yes, I should tell you that I um, preached at some point in my life. So I can get a little didactic and preachy sometimes, but I won't do that to you. Um, I'm going to read, and then I'll break in between all of the readings, and then we'll take questions. And I also don't have my glasses. I'm just messing up today. (laughs) There were many nights I tried to skip bath time during my childhood, even if my seven-year-old body smelled like outside, as my mom would say. Yo, (laughs) yo, mom, ever say that to y'all? And actually, as I got older, I knew exactly what outside smelled like. I would leap into my bed without worry, smelling like a mix of grass, hot air, sweat, grime, and good times. The bathtub in our small two-bedroom apartment felt too confining, and the way the water became sludge after I washed away the residue on my body left from hours of play repulsed me. I would move to the farthest end of any corner in the tub to avoid being touched by the once fresh water made dirty after washing. At some point, though, my dad had decided he had had enough of my resistance. My dad loved the water. He swam with the grace of a bottlenose dolphin. When he went fishing, there was something about him that seemed to attract fish every time he released his pole. His brothers and sisters would tell me later that water was the element in which my father felt most disarmed and whole. One evening after dinner, my father called me into the bathroom. As I walked closer, I could hear the water hitting the bathtub floor with force. The door was slightly ajar as he stood in a tub lathering a washcloth with ivory soap. Black people love that ivory soap. (laughs) Open the door. What you standing there for, he asked. I walked into the bathroom with as much annoyance as I did whenever I needed to wash. I'm about to teach you how to wash yourself properly. You can't be walking around here stinking. You're getting older and your body is changing, he said. And he prepared the wash rag and soap as if he were about to begin a legitimate class on proper cleanliness. I stepped cautiously into the steamy bathwater. It was the first time I stood in the presence of my father when he was naked, which actually made me forget about how much I hated washing. It was mystifying to stand in the bathtub bare before the man who often veiled his deepest emotions and used the force of his physical power to dominate the spaces he moved through. I stared at him as he stood uncovered, more vulnerable and more self-possessed than I had ever seen him. He was 23 years old at the time, younger than I am now, but he was a father who was raising children. I can barely care for myself at 42, employed and relatively well paid. That was when I was writing a book. (laughs) Shit, nobody told me that being a writer. Okay, anyway. Um, (laughs) And cannot imagine all the tools he needed and lacked to properly care for my siblings and me. Get all the way in the water. Stop being scared. You gotta learn to clean your whole body, especially behind your ears and under your balls. He instructed me firmly, but with care and amusement as we squeezed our bodies into the tub. When we sat down, he moved his hand over mine. Together, we grabbed the soapy wash rag and moved it across my neck, behind my ears, along my arms, and across my chest. My father gently washed my back as he instructed me on how best to clean up parts that smell the worst when boys play outside all day. My fear of the bath dissipated more and more after each repetition of instruction, offered amid safety in the presence of my father, who in other instances used the same hands to do damage. 
there was a lesson to be learned in the water. Bathing correctly was one lesson, but I also learned how tenderness and violence, care and harm are strange bedfellows. Gonna skip. I buried a man who was stuck. He was forever attempting to break away from the world of the black boy who didn't finish grade eight, the one who had a kid at 15, a boy who was pulled in by the lore of the streets, a teen who would later beat the girl he got beat up for protecting, a black man frozen in time. He was a black man who swung back when love sometimes showed up in the form of an embrace. We are the same. Like my father and so many other black men, some of us don't really ask for what we want because to ask for love is to ask for that which has been denied us for so long. How many of us want what we have been told we cannot or are not allowed to have? Interpersonal and structural forces shape the ways we give and receive love, as well as the violence we men sometimes inflict upon our partners. I am not sure if that was his struggle. I know it is mine, largely because of his absence, which is the truth I believed had weighed him down. The last words I spoke over his unconscious body as he rested on a hospital bed, surrounded by the kids he had left long before were simple. Fly, I know you are heavy. We forgive you. Whatever weights you have been carrying, let them go. Fly, I only told him what I learned to do in his absence. So part of uh, this process was a breaking opening a breaking open for me. My father passed as I was writing the book. Um, he was 55, which is only exceptional or spectacular because it is so common among black men and boys, right? Black mortality rates are high. And had he not died before I finished writing this book, I would have wrote him in as a different character. I would have wrote about the ways his hands had been used for violence only. I would not have been able to sort of really talk and be, to sit with his fuller humanity. Um, that story was important for me to write because I wanted to detail that his hands were used for beautiful things too. Um, I wanted to honor his full com human complexity and the only way I got there really is because my mother, so they met when my father that actually had me. He was 15, she was 16 when I was born. They were kids. And it was important for me, and I should tell you this, it did not occur to me that my father was a kid until I wrote the word, and he was 15 when I was born in the book. And I was like, whoa. <laughs> oh, and I kept thinking, well, who taught him what he knew? Who taught him what he knew about boyhood, about manhood, about being a partner? What were the cues that he picked up um, and when I started thinking about that, it made me understand a bit more how he became the person in the home who had done violence. I mean, his nickname was Boo Boo and Sweet Daddy at 15. Think about that. Think about what that message is attempting, how that message is shaping him into the type of man he's becoming. Um, but I talked to my mom, who was a direct ben beneficiary of his violence, who was his friend for many years. And I said, well, how do you, you know, I, also, I should tell you too, when he passed and I knew I was going to be the one who would likely have to eulogize him, all of my life I kept saying, if this man passes when he does, what the hell am I going to say at his funeral? And I did not, I was just, I, I was not ready to, to eulogize him until my mom said, well, you know, I've known him all of my life and I've gotten to see all aspects of him the bad and the good. 
And while I don't forget the bad that he's done or um, you know, not hold him accountable, I know that he was a person that when she said to me she was almost sexually assaulted as a kid. And my dad was a person that fought the assailant, well, he got beat up, um, trying to fight the guy away that tried to sexually assault her and slept outside of her house every day to protect her. And she told me stories about how when she didn't have food to eat, he was the one that would go, obviously, and because he was just the type of guy that he was, and steal food so that she can eat. And she started recounting all of these things, and what it made me do was to sit with his humanity and to remember that he was a fuller person than I had allowed him to be in my mind. And part of that had to do with me wanting to hold him up as the big monster because it helped me to feel better about myself. And as long as I, I would always say, as long as I'm not him, I'm good. And I think about that. For most of us, we have those monsters in our lives until I had to sit down and write a book that forced me to be self-reflexive, that forced me to realize that all of us carry monsters within us. So that I wrote this book and it was a transcendent experience to end it, having loved him again. Somebody actually, this is a little crazy. Someone writer, some reader found my address. <laughs> I don't know how they found, I mean, I guess it's online. But she wrote me a 20 page letter and she pretty much was detailing how the healing and the relationship that I have with my father is just now beginning to start, even in his death. And I believe that to be true. And part of that has to do with the work that was able to happen with the writing of the book. Um, this next part, <laughs> well, I always sort of feel a little weird reading this because it, well, okay. So the book is really honest. Can I just say that? Um, and in some ways, sometimes I, I, I always say, well, can high schoolers deal with this? And so I remember that in high school, I was dealing with these things, sex, sexuality, um, and actually needed outlets to talk about them um, and didn't have them. And because I was a teacher, I, am a, I formally taught, I also knew that some of my students, most of them were learning about these things on the internet. So I, I, I hope that we can create spaces for young people to talk about some of this stuff now. So just as a caveat, if anybody want to walk away now, or if you have kids and you want to tell them to go to the other room, <laughs> this is a, a moment in which I am in a park and um, detailing an encounter that happens there. I swallowed and digested my secret. The aftertaste of my week with him was so unforgettable. I would stick her finger down my throat to bring it up years later. Billy was his name. He was in his early 20s and stood a few inches taller than me. His agile body was buried under an army fatigue coat and baggy jeans. Hypnotic eyes lit Billy's smooth, honey-colored face and tempting smile. He me his measured movements through the thorny paths of a public park in Center City, Philly made him seem unafraid. We briefly played the game. I turned around and looked in his direction as he walked away. We caught eyes as he glanced back. He nodded. My heart raced as we gave each other the look that is only understood by two young men searching for each other in the night. Our gaze was our contract. There were no words spoken, no unease, just unfulfilled longings and erotic attraction dawned for us what our silences in the day had prevented. Dead brown leaves crushing under our feet was the only sound we made as we searched in the park for a place to go. I was too scared to actually fuck a stranger outside. 
Trees aren't mattresses. Police patrolling parks aren't friends. And homosexuality wasn't right. But because welcoming embraces were few, the hand of a stranger moving about my neck as I unzipped my pants was worth it. We didn't do much, but our little, our too little was enough. Playing with an unexpected stranger outside amid quieted moans, competing with the sounds of cars traveling in the distance, close enough to hear the breath of other men cruising the park was a new experience for me. I was 19. I wasn't yet gay. Billy was just my third or fourth secret. Always in the park, dark of the night and always alone, I found touch and sometimes violence. Not that time, however. I searched and left the park with an answered prayer. It was a peculiar blessing. Not unlike Terrence's innocent kiss or Jason's hug that fueled my wet dreams, these encounters were so memorable because they represented the fantastic, surreal power of fugitive freedom. Queerness is magic for those brave enough to make use of it, but it can feel poisonous for those who have yet to give into its power. I sensed Billy's magic, so I traveled with Billy to his home in Northwest Philly. No overnight bag or change of clothes, no toothbrush or condom, no clue how I would get home, and no contact with friends for several days. No cares in the world, including for myself. No money, no sense of Billy's last name, but we held each other every night. For that short time when we lost ourselves in our sweat, stale breath, and questions, there was no abandonment or fear of rejection. In Billy's cluttered 10 by 12 foot room, our bodies intertwined. We shared secrets we would later forget. We giggled at horrible jokes. In his wisdom, he encouraged me to push through college. We held hands, listened to music. Only the faint concerns of acquiring HIV after days of unprotected sex broke our harmony. But even the thought was not enough of a wanting to, con e but even the thought of was not enough of wanting me to, conv of convincing me to leave, to get condoms. How could I? The presence of arms and hands and tender lips and empathic hugs and loving thrusts and seeing eyes was too irresistible to fear death. I had buried fear, my fear of HIV years before when my Aunt Cookie told me at the age of 15 that a second cousin I had never met was gay. She didn't actually say the word, she made a hand motion. Others used when they wanted to communicate that someone they knew was a fag. And a fag, like wrist, like any dream, and for the fag, wrist, like any dream of his desires for acceptable intimacy, seemed to always be broken. I quickly added, your cousin's name was Darnell, too. He died of AIDS. Her semantic game worked. I would never again say AIDS and gay without interpreting them as synonyms. My fate was sealed. I was gay, and therefore AIDS would be my fate, just like my dead, gay, HIV-positive cousin, whom I had never met who may have existed only in Aunt Cookie's imagination. But I kept my cousin alive in my dreams. I imagined that his skin was smooth and as brown as maple. His eyes were deep and dark. His hand was strong, but smooth enough to be held by the hands of another man. His back was perfectly postured, strong enough to carry his lover from the sofa to the bedroom. He was a black man I learned to openly shame and secretly admire. He was my aunt's friend, Keith. He was Leroy, my high school classmate who jumped double dutch better than the girls. He was Dre, who told me I was gay before I knew I was. Dre died before I knew what was wrong. He was buried along with his secrets. This was the imaginative world black men like us who flirted with, slept with, and deeply loved other black boys and men tried our best to survive, despite the ways HIV decimated those around us in the 90s. Some of these men, sometimes beloved and sometimes scorned, were our fathers, uncles, neighbors, boyfriends, hookups, and play muggers. 
so many of us were in living through the post-traumatic anxieties of those years. Public, anxiety, public health research and community-based interventions that have now focused on the who and not the why when it comes to advocacy related to black boys and men and HIV. During my late adolescence, never once did a doctor ask while administering an HIV test if I experienced love or rejection, connection or estrangement. It didn't matter that Billy was beautiful and kind. They wanted to know if I had sex with men. They didn't ask why it was I decided against using a condom despite my awareness of HIV risk. It didn't matter that I never had sex with Jason, who didn't identify as gay, then or now, and yet shared care and intimacy with him. Some doctors didn't even smile while interrogating me. Some never asked if it was okay because my feelings were not the concern. Humans feel, but subjects report. Um, that was important for me to write, uh, this chapter one, because I don't know, we need to normalize like sex outside of the heterosexual sort of imagination, like people have sex in other ways, y'all. Like, hello. Um, duh. Always have. Um, but also, really, the chapter is really not about sex, it's about intimacy. And it's about the, in which is a human longing that is often forgotten about when we're talking about um, sexuality and queer difference. I didn't end up in a park because I like sex that much. I was in a park because, and at night, and this is important to think about when you're thinking about young people, I was searching for places to be free, to be seen, to be held, to be understood. And what happens when we don't create spaces in the day by virtue of the laws that we create, by virtue of the, the theologies we espouse, by virtue of the communities we keep, that is what happens. You have people who run off and have to hide in places like parks to do and to experience what any human being feels and ex also experience intimacy. I often talk about how family members, like my cousins would come home and talk about their crushes. They were like, oh my God, I like that light skin one over there, you know. That's what the straight kids did. But imagine being a little queer child in your house who have to hold on to secrets because you don't create the type of safe environment for them to live. Do you know what type of world one has to create on their own? And how often those worlds are without, without safety because of the lack of space that folk have, don't have, um, in which they can share those desires, right? And that is what this book was about. It's an indictment of the ways that each of us, all of us, myself included, um, are complicit in the shaping of worlds that don't allow for people to be fully human, to feel human, to feel, to experience intimacy. I would have loved to come home at, in sixth grade and say, oh my, my biology teacher is so cute. Mr. Brown, he was like real sharp. I, was, I didn't even know I was gay. I was just like, he's just fine. I don't even know what that's about. But like, <laughs> you know what I mean? I just would have loved to talk to somebody about it, yeah? Uh, which is why I don't use the term inviting, I don't use the term coming out. The term I use is inviting in. Coming out is a demand, an injunction that's made of people who want others outside of the sort of normative gaze to name themselves for the sake of your comfort. Straight people don't have to come out of shit. This is a straight world. We're born into the world where everything is filtered through a heterosexual lens and as much as it's a white lens and as much as it's a male lens, right? You have to come out of nothing. When somebody comes to your house and knock on the door, you typically look through the peephole, right? If you know them and feel safe enough with them, you open the door and you let them in. 
That house is a metaphor for our lives. Invitation, our, our disclosure in that way is an invitation, it's an act of hospitality that we let people in we feel safe with, that we don't have to name ourselves for the sake of being seen as abnormal, for the sake of making anybody else comfortable, but Im that invitation is an act that can be applied by all of us, not just the person we deem as the abnormal one who needs to name themselves in this space. In other words, you know, like my mom, and I'll read this part, she said to me, I knew, you know, well, I won't give it, give it away, but I told my mom, you know, you could have been talked to me about this. Because it was always on your mind, she said to me, I know, your mom said, I always knew you was gay. I was like, well, it would have been great if you said that shit 28 years ago. <laughs> would have saved me a lot of headache and therapy bills, you know what I mean? In other words, we all have access to that hospitality where we can create space for people. Um, so I'll read about my mom, and then I'll open up for clips. And my mom is like, uh, she's my heart. Um, to see all that she has been able to make of a life. Lucille Clifton's poem, is, I forget all of the lines, Julia, you may know it, but it's, won't you come celebrate with me? And I'm a paraphrase, that every day something has tried to kill me, but I have survived. And I think of my mom when I think about that poem. She had me at 16, was forced to stop going to school in 10th grade so she can take care of me. I would pick up pay stubs um, that she would have after working long hours at a department store taking the, you know, stock, she was a stock girl, they called it, and would take the items out the back of the trucks and stock the, the shelves. And her paycheck, I, sh I think she was making three seventy-five in an hour. And I would look at paychecks that were like $280. And then she would come home and raise four kids. This is what this black woman was doing. At the same time, the rhetoric of the welfare queen was coming down from the people's White House, like Reagan. And they thought, when you talked about the welfare queen, my mother, who was, had to apply and, and get municipal support, but who was one of the best gifts to her community, was one of the people that was imagined under the guise of that term. And she's the same black woman who is possible, like her, her being made my living possible. I went off and got three advanced degrees before she went and got her high school diploma at 50. And I was only able to do that because of that black girl who became a black mother, who became a black woman that made my life possible. Um, so in, when I think about these big terms like intersectionality, yeah, you hear this term a lot. Her life is an example of that and a life of so many black women and girls who our ideology and rhetoric and policies have done nothing but harm. But they've done everything to save so many of us. I'm here because of her. So I just had to honor her. <laughs> and let you know, y'all packed this room because a black girl had me. <laughs> um, I watched the red status line at the bottom of my uh, screen extend as my text was transmitted. I didn't want it to go through, but it did. My commute from Elizabeth to Camden was two hours by train, so I had a lot of time to rehearse my speech. Over and over again, I repeated the words I would share with my, as my heart pounded faster and harder. I feared my mom would reject me, even though I knew my mother, who had never turned her back on me before, would understand. I knew my com confession would be a gamble, and I was banking on her love, but I didn't know what I would do if the news upset her. For so long, I believed I would need to carry my secret with me to my grave. I convinced myself that the matters of my heart 
and the intimacy shared in my bedroom were private. But that wasn't the case with straight people in my family. Heterosexual love was never hidden. It was hyper-visible and sometimes overbearing. Yes, your love can be overbearing. I'm telling y'all that now. You can laugh. Ha, 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 ha. That's funny. Um, <laughs> until it's not funny. And then it's still funny. But I needed my mother to know that the man who picked up the phone when she called was holding me down every day and was one of the reasons I remained alive. The love we shared was just as valid as the love shared between my aunts and uncles, cousins, and their parents. I looked down at my phone every other minute, waiting for a response. Ten minutes after I sent the text, my mom's message finally came through. I'll meet you at your job. I stared at my phone screen for several minutes and the shame, embarrassment, trepidation, and self-hatred I had internalized for most of my 28 years of life surfaced again. I remember the many times I was called a faggot. I remember the times I had to fight my way home. I remember the gasoline and the matches, the rumors of HIV and the jokes, the warnings I had heard in church and the prayers for my deliverance, the feelings of disgust that welled up when I was in the presence of femme boys and the implicit lesson I picked up from family members who were overly concerned about the girlfriends I did or didn't have. I was certain I would break if my mother responded with revulsion. But I had made a decision to remove people, including family, from my life who refused to accept all of me. I refused to allow others to kill my spirit and happiness. And that is what terrified me the most as I was preparing to meet my mom. I was afraid of my newfound, newfound freedom. I feared the man I had become, less burdened and more committed to loving, living a life unfettered. I feared liberation because I had gotten used to living in stealth, trying my best to survive in a cage. I knew how much I was willing to lose to fly, and I was afraid of losing my loved ones. But that morning, I would face my fears with whether I wanted to or not. It was time. I made it to the office around 9 a.m. I sat at my desk behind a closed door with my hand folded over my eyes. I felt unease. Shane, who actually is from Harrisburg, <laughs> my partner at the time, could not be the reason I was setting myself up for potential backlash, I thought. I had to convince myself that I needed to talk to my mom because it was time for me to confront the terror that had been a faithful antagonist in my life. And not because Shane had forced me to tell her I was gay for the sake of his pride. I needed to talk to my mom for me and him, but also because I knew she needed to hear my truth if we were to be any closer than what we were. My assistant phoned my office and let me know my mom was in the waiting room. I took a deep breath, stood up from my desk, walked out to greet her and invited her into my office. I thought I was going to collapse. My thoughts were scattered as I tried to flesh out what I would say. We sat down across from one another and I panicked. Thanks for coming. I stuttered with my head slightly lowered so that my mom couldn't look me directly in my eyes while I talked. Of course, what's wrong? Why did you want me to come up here? She asked the question as if she had already known what I was about to say, almost like an invitation. Well, I, I don't know how to say it. I'd practiced the script several times on a long ride to work, but the words were chained to my throat. I couldn't release them. What is it? Are you sick? No. Okay, do you have cancer? Her question was legitimate concern. We had lost my grandfather to cancer three years before, but that wasn't the secret I needed to share. No, I responded. What is it? Do you have AIDS? Nah, I have a boyfriend. The words flew out of my mouth too fast to catch them, and there was no turning back. She would either accept me, or I would go off to build my life and family without her. That's it? I knew that, she said with a half laugh. <laughs> so funny. <laughs> you knew, Darnell, I am your mom. You are my son, and I love you regardless. I've always known. 
I know that's why you stayed away as much as you could. I know that's why you stay away as much as you can. Every word to follow was like a sledgehammer breaking down the thick walls of shame and trapping me. Her acceptance was more healing than any prayer, more uplifting than any group counseling session, more powerful than any force of hate I internalized. I'm so sorry for lying to you, Mom. You didn't lie. You did what you needed to do to protect yourself. I wanted to talk to you, but I didn't know how you would respond. I didn't want to offend you, but I knew, and I waited. I felt as if I had received my freedom papers, as if I had been imprisoned in a suffocating cell for 28 years or 10,220 days, and my mother had come along with the key to unlock the cage. I realized, however, I had been holding the keys all along. I merely shared them with my mother. She was there, sitting opposite me, loving me because I invited her in. She accepted the invitation. And we both were changed as a result. My insides were touched by a love so immensely powerful, my body and spirit were literally reconfigured. I sat up straight. I lifted my head from its lower position. I opened my mouth and smiled. My stomach filled with butterflies. My heart danced. I wanted to leap and run and scream at the top of my lungs. I am gay as hell. <laughs> and I don't give a fuck who's mad about it because my mama loves me and I fucking love me too. All of my life, I was taught to believe that single black mothers who have young kids like my mama were the cause of the problems in black families and the reason black boys like me made poor choices. We have been taught to believe black people, especially the economically strapped, are urban, are churched, are southern, are backward, and less progressive on issues of sexuality. I believe the lies for a good part of, the li of my life, but that day my mom, who had birthed me in a black city, when she was a black girl, affirmed the full expression of my, of my humanity was the day I decided to always put my faith in black people, even if my faith would be tested over and over again. Thank you, I'll take questions. If you have a question, um, just raise your hand and we'll, uh, I'll come around and get you. Who's gonna break the ice? I saw over here first. Who are your expect? Who are your expected readers of this book? Mm -hmm. Great question. Um, when I was writing it, I had actually I would close my eyes and imagine that there was like a theater, and in it I would see the head of a little boy, black, peasy head like me with glasses on, um, and as I would write, I would, remind, I would think about myself writing to him. That little boy was me. So I thought about writing. It. As I was writing this, I was really very specific. Um, and I actually think that specificity and particularity isn't a bad thing. Uh, and oftentimes, we're pushed to sort of write towards the universal. So that you know, you're, you're often told, like, if you write too specific, that's about Camden. It's about sort of black Camden. It's about black LGBT Camden. Um, then you will miss people. But what I know is that in those stories, in our particularities, we can sense the sort of, the feels, the things that all human beings go through. Um, you all know the movie Moonlight as an example, right? The reason why Moonlight was so successful is because Terrell and Barry, who are friends of mine, were very specific about the, the world that they wanted to create. Very specific. And in some ways, I think that the film and the publishing industries have been resistant to say a film with only black characters because, you know, to not have a white character in it is to not get people to come and see it. 
that film proved a big point, that one need not have a white character in a black film in order for you to capture the specificity of human life in these stories. So I was writing to 16-year-old me. Now here's an interesting thing to get to that point. When the lawyer who was reviewing this book to make sure that I wouldn't be sued, because you know I pr probably could be sued, because I'm writing about people, was reviewing it, she was from Texas. So my editor said, okay, so the lawyer's on the phone, and before she, we click her on, she's from Texas, and she's a white woman. <laughs> I had all this idea about what white women in Texas are like. I'm gonna just be very honest, right? And I was thinking, she, what's she gonna say about this book? Like, she a white woman from Texas, you know? And she said to me, Darnell, thank you for writing this book. So much of what you wrote about were things I've experienced. And it blew my mind. Because she wasn't in my audience when I was writing, you know? She wasn't sitting in that chair. But it made me realize that in these books, even in their particularities, are human, are, are human experiences that we all can relate to. Um, so I think anybody will be able to pick it up, I think, and find some, some aspects of a self. Brokenness. We've all experienced intimacy, yes? Yeah? We've all experienced brokenness. We've experienced the high and lows of family life. We've experienced, some of us, the, the trials that come with economic ins and outs. Um, these are things that are not just germane to the black people that was in Camden or my family. We all had dance parties in our house and barbecues. That's just not black stuff. That's just not black Camden stuff. Y'all have barbecues? All right, so you can pick up the book and you can probably get, get connected to that. And you don't gotta be black or from Camden to get connected. So my point is, we don't have to be afraid. I wasn't afraid about being specific. And I told my publisher that if I'm gonna do this, I need that to be honored. I don't, you know, I didn't, and, and I think in honoring that vision, um, most of the people that I've been hearing from, a lot of them don't come from these ex this background. And are writing me even to this day, like on Twitter, like, thank you. And I look at them, I'm like, whoa, okay, like, you know, you're from Wisconsin or whatever, but like. <laughs> so yeah. We've got a question over here. <laughs> so hi, uh, two questions. Uh, one is, um, after you had the conversation with your mother, um, how did that change things with your family? Sure. Oh my gosh. Um, my mom and I have always been close. Well, no, we, 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 We've been close, but this, it sort of made us like best friends. Um, I think like, it, a couple things. Um, I come from a family that perfected the art of, I don't know if y'all come from families like this, but hiding our secrets. You know what I mean? Like, I come from a, <laughs> I'm like, y'all all saw what happened yesterday, right? We all saw, but nobody gonna talk about it today, that type of, and we just would get back up. Y'all know what I'm saying? Like, anybody? And act as if, like, things are not happening in our universes. Um, but I think what that did was uh, helped us to be vulnerable, to experience vulnerability, to be transparent with one another. So my mom and I would just start, like, we had so she, she, so, I mean, it changed so rapidly that the next day, my mom doesn't drive to this day. Um, everybody else drives except for her because she feel like she, you know, she deserves that. Like, she, she calls everybody like, pick me up, pick me up, pick me up. <laughs> um, but the next day, and we do, the next day, because she deserves that, um, she got on a train 
and travel two hours to come hear me give a keynote and to meet my partner on the train and travel back home at like 11 o'clock at night by herself. Um, and I think for so many, and my sisters also, I wrote them letters and they were all like, thank God you said something because child, we've been talking about this for years. <laughs> they apparently found letters of mine. I didn't know this when I was a kid and they've been <laughs> waiting to tell me this all my life. So now they still make jokes, <laughs> jokes about this. Um, but here, see what, see what happened there? Like we were all holding on to this thing that we, that we knew but did not name. And that thing for many of us in our families is not just about sexual identity. It's about, y'all know what I'm talking about, right? Like, yes, okay. Um, and what that did was like allowed us to talk about it. Even writing this book, I shared, you know, they would read with me as I, as I wrote. And my sister, the sister right under me called me one day and she said, um, you know, she's like, first she's like, stop sending me this at work because I'm crying like all day. But the second thing she said is, you know, I've been holding on to um, something that had bothered me all of my life. She's 38. And it took her 38 years to finally have someone in the family that she could share that secret with. And it just made me think, like, it is okay, y'all, for us to not be okay. That's what I told them. And the second question I had was, what is no ashes in the fire? Yeah, so um, in the third chapter, a chapter called Magic, I tell the story, um, I was 14 and I was, y'all can probably, I was very quirky, I'm very quirky now, <laughs> but even more so as a young child, and I was picked on a lot um, for that quirkiness, and I would not call it, I didn't, had nothing to do with my sexuality, I wasn't necessarily sure if I was gay, um, but, you know, I danced and played with the girls, I did not like sports, particularly because I wore glasses and I honestly could not see the balls coming. I mean, I, I wanted to play, but like I couldn't see the ball. I gave it to him. So I didn't play sports, but I danced and I sang and I, I, I just loved the girls and I was hanging with the girls and the boys and my neighborhood picked on me a lot. And one day I was coming home from the store um, after school and th four boys surrounded me. They were about 14 and 15 too. Well, one was a little older. Um, and like uh, this happened all the time. And they, they physically assaulted, they jumped me. But one of them took a gallon of um, gasoline that was, uh, took a milk carton that was filled with gasoline that he had got from a moped and emptied it on me and tried to light a match. Um, but the, the match, as he would try to light it, the wind would knock the flame out. So y'all, I probably ended up, <laughs> I mean, I'm a, I was a church boy and then I would say, that's nothing but the Holy Ghost. Ain't nothing but the Spirit. <laughs> Save me. I still believe that. Some spirit, ancestors. But it's a, a reference to that moment where, so there were no ashes in the fire because there was no body to be lame. That's something I survived. But it's also a metaphor about black life in America, what it means to be black. America, if, if you're black, has always been a fire that we've had to survive through, isn't it? That, that wasn't a rhetorical question. We, history is our yes to that question. In other words, you know the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the Bible? Y'all know, this is sort of the Bible belt, kind of, so I think y'all know that story. Um, but that's a fascinating story because here you have three boys in the, in the furnace with the fire blazing. And what are the boys doing in the furnace? Walking around alive and there's this 
fourth sort of presence that is supposed to be the spirit, right? Um, and that's what I think about black people in America. Black people who have come here um, and, and through chattel slavery, who had to live through black codes and slave codes, who had to live through Jim and Jane Crow, laws, policies, institutionalized to disenfranchise folks. And yet here we are, walking in the fire that is not white racial supremacy that I'm just talking about as sort of like rhetoric. I'm talking about material forms of it. I want to be clear that when we say terms like that, I'm not just talking about the, the feeling or the, the N-word. I'm talking about bona fide. Do y'all know that laws were in the, like you Do you realize black people weren't even considered human? To survive? To be here? With smiles on the face? Barbecues in the backyard? Glittery dresses on like Julia has on over there? In the midst of the fire is what it means for us, really, for there to be no ashes, because there are no bodies, spiritual ones, and some, you know, some. And I always say, not everybody survived the fires, though. Not everybody survived the fires. This book is also, in many ways, a an, an, an honor, a way of remembering those who did not make it out of the fires. In that same neighborhood, around the corner from where that happened to me, Wani Wallace, who was 17 just a few years ago, who was perceived as gay, was shot in the back of his head as a hate crime. Same neighborhood around the corner, why didn't make it. So this book is also a reminder that while the fire rages and some of us get to survive, not all of us have the benefit and privilege of that survival. So it's a way of remembering them too. How do we get people that don't know how to make space to make space? Mm. I mean, kick the door down. <laughs> You, you know, part of it, so I do believe that stories can help and that literature and art and popular culture can help. Um, I also, you know, this is an interesting time we're in, isn't it? I guess we should say that. <laughs> it's an interesting time, and it's an interesting time um, because of the ways, uh, okay, so let, we should, let's just have this conversation. I feel like it's r irresponsible not to. As we are here, people are marching and preparing to march under the banner of white nationalism and white supremacy as we are, as we are sitting here. Yeah? Um, and while I would love, would love, would love to act like that is so spectacular, um, what I need to say, if we are to be honest, is that, you know, I, I, I like to say America likes to lie to itself. We don't like to tell the truth. For, for, some, for me, I, can, I can't speak for everybody else. This is not uh, exceptional or spectacular to me. Because you know what I know to be true? That this has always <laughs> been the case, and this is what people feel and what they act on. Um, We have to, and I, I, I have to say this, we're really good at naming the feet that are on our necks, the ways that we're impacted 
by oppressions, but you know what we're not good at as people? Naming the ways are the, f are the ways that our feet are situated on somebody else's. And guess what, y'all? Everybody in this room got their feet on somebody's neck. And the way I feel like we got to make space is by encouraging people to take their damn feet off somebody's neck. I don't have time to tell you, teach you how to not to be a racist. That's not my work. I'm not up here to tell you how not to be a homophobe or how to be a, a, a person that's antagonistic to trans folk. Remember in the beginning I said we need windows and mirrors? We are too damn smart to not know how to access those mirrors, pick that mirror up and to be self-reflexive. You got Google, you got each other, and we have to be able to look in the mirror and to see, to evaluate, to be self-reflexive and ask ourselves, whose neck is my feet on? And let me be clear, just because we don't say the N-word, just because we're not at the march, just because I'm not out here calling somebody a, a derogatory name if they're LGBT does not make my stuff any cleaner. Because my silences are loud. Silences are not, si you know, they, they make noise. <laughs> our inability to challenge people, and our, you know, the, 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 the guy that ran his car into Heather Heyer, who was killed last year, and his mom said, I knew, you know, I, I just thought he was going to this, I didn't know it was an alt-right rally. I thought he was going there just to hear Trump. Uh, huh? Not when the rhetoric that's coming out of the White House with, with policies being enacted right now by people like Stephen Miller that's about to get legal immigrants who have had public assistance from being denied green cards, if that's not white nationalism, I don't know what else is. White nationalism is being preached from the White House. So we, let me, can I just keep it real? Let's stop lying to ourselves and each other. Don't be coming up in here and get all like bent out of shape acting like this, you know, I, that, I can't stand that. Everybody's like, oh my gosh, look what's happening. No, 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 we knew that this is, we, we saw this coming. And some of us participate in it. So the way that we make space is by having these type of hard conversations. I don't even think they're hard. They're just, I, if you love something, you're gonna be honest to it. Baldwin said the reason why I critique America is because I love it. We do not like to tell the truth in this country. But if we love this country, we, we would tell, and if we love each other, we would tell each other the truth. That's how we make space. I love you, which is why I'm gonna stand up here and not go, I'm not going to be on this okey doke like Wayne noticed stuff was happening under our noses. When I used to come here, Shane was going to schools in this, in in this area, y'all, and they were still calling him Mokey and Nigger in Harrisburg. He's biracial. His mom is white. His dad is black. And they would call him Monkey whenever he got on his school bus. That's y'all neighborhood. Don't tell me Wayne noticed stuff was happening. To make space, we have to encourage people to not only analyze whose feet are on their necks, but ask them to name whose neck their feet are on, and then tell them to get it off. Question over here. So I haven't read your book, mm -hmm. but listening to you tonight, I have to ask, were you a poet first? Mm. Mm. Because Aww. I just hear such be beautiful poetry in some of the passages that you read tonight. 
that's so that's such a great question. No one had asked me has asked me that yet. The first piece of writing that I ever wrote and was uh, publicly acknowledged for was a poem. I wrote it when I was fourteen. It, it was a poem. I don't know, it was a, you can probably tell it was about something black by now. You probably know that. It was a black poem. I don't even know what it was said, but um, I won the citywide poetry contest at 14. Um, and Sonia Sanchez was the featured poet at the event. So the very first piece of writing that I, I think had gave me any inclination that words were something that I love was poetry. Um, and I, I'm so appreciative. I'm also a, a musician in my, in my past life. So musicality and rhythm, um, sort of silent space, was really important as I wrote. So as I would write, I actually would read drafts aloud so I can hear how they sound, um, which influenced the sort of writing too. Thank you for picking that up. Thanks. Question over here? And, and oh. right, right here? Okay. Cool. Right here. I think you started to talk about my question. I think looking at this, uh, you know, you talk, it, it spoke very loudly to me about closed spaces where we, we kind of kept the secrets growing up from each other. And I think a lot of us probably have experienced that. For me, it's the question as we look at, as I have a child and I move forward, mm. how do we open that space with our children yeah. to teach them where's, you know, because there's so many lines. And yeah. how do we break down some of those barriers so that we can start to, one thing I'm seeing with things is, and now we're having some really loud conversations. <laughs> it's, it's a time of, trial, tribulation, yeah. all that. What do we do with that to leverage that to try to improve? Thank you for that. Um, one, I just want to thank you for bringing your children. Um, I think that that's a start. Um, because I'm sure that they're, not only can they engage this conversation, and I know y'all probably think I'm a little crazy and weird, but I'm so glad you're here. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I hope that they, that, that the conversation can continue. You know, that, um, these are the type of spaces we need and, and, and have to trust that our young people have the capacity to manage the levity of it too. Um, so I think that that's a start, that we can't be afraid to talk to young people about things we don't think that they already know. Um, my I have nieces and nephews, I love my nieces and nephews, and they are so aware of the world in ways that shock me. One, because they're always in my Instagram feed, like looking at my stories. <laughs> I'm like at the bar, like uh, taking shots at the bar. Six-year-olds, like they lit all have Instagram accounts. I'm like, oh, they're actually watching the world. And I had to think about that. Um, and I think about, okay, the conversations that I did not have access to. Um, who's talking to the young people about my my nieces, particularly in this Me Too movement moment, Women's March moment? I I want to be able to talk to them about the fact that their body is theirs, that their bodies are theirs, and that they ought to love their bodies and that they can cherish their bodies and that they can share. I mean, and I spend time with them. I took them to Paris and London, like just so I can sit with them and allow them to see the world, right? Um, and I have, and to sort of open up space for them to ask questions about the world, about themselves. Um, and I just think we have to be unafraid. You know, yep, mm-hmm. So, I do. So what happens is like, um, so with queer culture, for example, my nieces are dancers, and y'all know voguing? Like, you know what voguing is? Yeah. So they love that, <laughs> right? Like they're always, so what I would do 
I would start showing them online. Like we'll go and watch. Um, I'll go up on YouTube and pull clips up, and we'll watch. Um, like th it's called ballroom scenes. So you watch the kids vogue and battle each other. And my nieces are like, they got all like the gay lingo down. Like yes, you know you're doing all this stuff. <laughs> Being serious. <laughs> it's so funny to me. And they have friends that are identifying a variety of different ways. And I use that as an avenue to have conversation. Do you all know what this is? Like, do you all know what you're watching? And, and this is a subculture that was originated by um, black and brown folk in New York. These are LGBT folk who have created this sort of culture to express their talent. Those are less, and I say, you know what LGBT means? And I, 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 I pr you know, um, you know, my, my little nephew who is 10 um, was at school and he should not have been on his phone, but he was texting me. And he was texting me during the day. He was like, they talk about you in my class. They talking about you in my class. And I kept saying, you my uncle. That's my uncle they talk. And they were doing, they showed a black, the Black Lives Matter documentary on HBO and I'm in it or something. He's like, that's my uncle right there. Clearly it says like, I'm black, I'm gay or whatever. And he was so proud. And so he said, can you come to my school and speak, <laughs> speak to the kids? He said, just don't make me stand up. I don't want to stand up. <laughs> um, and what this is teaching me is that they are, uh, they have so much, and this is why I believe and have hope in our future. Because I don't really got time for, you know, all the people that stuck in their ways, but I do know that we have some young people behind us whose minds are much more expansive, whose hearts are much more open than, um, than before. And I trust that they can um, maneuver through this world and teach us something. That's another thing. I don't believe that young people lack analysis and awareness. They see exactly what's going on, even in our silence. Question over here. Uh, thank you for reading to us and also sharing. I, and on your book, it's uh, coming of age. Do you, as a, um, as a gay male, do you have fears of your life in um, old age? That's a great, qu it's such a great, y'all asking really good questions. Um, yeah, you know, a big part, so, well, no. <laughs> I, I mean, yeah, because qu queer culture is very youth oriented. And um, I, I specifically, and so let me be clear that loneliness is a, a big theme in the book. And I write about loneliness a lot because I, I it's one of the um, facets of black gay male experiences that I, I see as quite as a thread. Um, I was just at a book talk, an intimate conversation in Atlanta two weeks ago. I think the ages in the room were from 30 to 60. And when the facilitator of the conversation asked in response to the book, what do you fear? And most people said loneliness. Um, and that, so yes, I, I think that one, it is a, a general concern um, that we sort of like, you know, older gay men are discarded often, which is why I like to go to, there's this bar on Christopher Street in New York still called The Hangar, and it's like where the, all the older folk go, and that's where I go. Uh, one, to remind myself that I'm, I'm like right there, like I'm, just, I'm, I'm like, I'm about to be right here with y'all, so I might as well get used to make friends now. <laughs> Um, but also because I want to, with my body, disrupt 
the gaps that typically will exist, um, the ageism that exists. I want to show up and be present um, and build community. Um, so yeah, I don't, I don't worry about it. I used to I used to fear that. I used to fear that I was going and I write about that in the book. Uh, I through I was reading the work of J of um, Joseph Bean from Philly, who one of his former friends and every now and then lover. Joseph talked so much about love, and they lamented that he was sort of suffered the lack of it. He died young, in his late 30s. And as I was reading it, I threw the book down, the, the piece down, because I, I'm like, I don't want to die like that. Like, I don't want to, you know, write all beautifully and poetically about love and not experience it. Um, and that fear for most people is a rational one, particularly when you come from an age where so many of the people that you love died. And so we have a whole generation that was wiped out. People lost friends, they lost lovers. Um, Y'all watch Pose, you should, uh, because it really, really does a good job at showing the sort of uh, impact of that loss on the community. And I think that that loss haunts and ghosts so many people's lives, intimate lives, um, and their interpersonal lives, it haunts mine. Um, I think about it now, but then, you know, I, I'm like, I mean, I have a family that um, if nothing else, if I'm, you know, lonely, they'll bring me back to Camden and cook me chicken, so I'll be fine. <laughs> Unfortunately, we're running out of time, so we have just uh, time for one last question in the front row. Um, my, my neighbors are from the Congo, and um, they're a really sweet, wonderful young couple with three children, and um, I talked to them today, and I, I know about King Leopold's mm. war on the Congo. And I like every once in a while to try to get people that I know to, uh, to become aware of the incredible, um, uh, you know, I think they killed, uh, what, a million and a half people in the Congo for, for the rubber and mm -hmm. the um, other resources that the Congo had. And of course we're doing, Americans, you know, I, I'm, I'm responsible still for supporting all of the capitalism and exploitation we do of around the world all the time, not just to Africa, but all over the world. And I kind of, I feel real isolated about that because there's so few people want to know about it. Mm. And they certainly don't want to talk about it. And um, I, s I feel your pain of, of inability to share uh, that experience with with people. I, I really wish there was some way to open that up. Do you have any suggestions? Um, I don't know if I have any suggestions, but I, I just want to pick up on something that you're saying. I think that's important, uh, the need to talk about class-based and economic issues, in addition to sort of like its global impacts. Um, I don't know if I have a suggestion. I, I, I think I said this before, but I think we have to be having tough conversations um, and, and be self-reflexive. I want to pivot from what you're asking me, though, to just talk about the why it was important for me to, to offer a hit. So in the book, what I also try to do is, while I'm talking about my family and their, their becoming, is offer a sort of social history of Camden, New Jersey. And it was important for me to show how Camden became the Camden that we now call the ghetto in the hood, 
and that there were a lot of forces implicated in the making of Camden in the same way that the Congo um, and in so many other places around the world are, pla are spaces that are what they are because of the various forces that make them what they are. And, and, and unpacking that, what I was also wanting to show was that when we talk about those forces, all of our hands are implicated, and that's just an important point to make. I will offer this as I close. Uh, one of the most shocking things that I discovered as I was researching my family's history, my great-grandmother, Alpernia, who had come with her family from Virginia, they moved to Philly um, when she was in her teens and um, taught herself to read, working about 60 to 80 hours a week, had kids, she moved to South Jersey, Pentalkin, which is right next to Camden, and brought her home. When I was researching, I went to look through archives to find her name, because I just wanted to see like, if anybody was talking about my grandma, and I found something, and it was a foreclosure notice for her home that she lost in 1977. And one, I never knew, because Camden is a, is a city of mostly renters, I didn't really know that um, I never knew that my family members owned homes, but what was striking <laughs> is that she saved all of her money to buy this home and lost it. Now, if we all know a history of sort of race and real estate, mortgage loans, FD, I can go on with how that disenfranchised so many black families. Her story is no different. It's connected really to, to sort of what was happening, which catalyzed, it sort of created a spiraling cycle of economic disenfranchisement in my family. And I would thought I was gonna find a story about like audaciousness, a story that would announce something like that was glorifying as a black woman and it was about a story of economic loss. So in the book, economic loss and disparity is also a central theme. Um, and it's one, a conversation I think we should be having now, particularly when um, racism can be overly thought about in a sort of very unnuanced way uh, we have to be thinking about class issues, too. Uh, and I think that that's just as critical. They always go together. Thanks, y'all, for having me here. This was... Uh, yeah, let's give it up for Darnell. Thank you, everyone, for coming. Huge thanks to Darnell.